Hey, everybody, Melissa McKenzie here uh, from the American Spectator. I'm the publisher there, and I'm joined, as always, with Scott McKay, who is a contributing editor to the American Spectator, and also the uh, grand poobah of the Hayride and yeah. of Reviver.com over in Louisiana. Yes, and today is a big day because today is election day across the fruited plains and there's lots of things going on. I voted today, by the way, and um, things were at a steady clip over at my precinct, actually, for a for uh, it was all local elections, very hyper local stuff and some um, also some funding things for the local school district. I felt like Scrooge McDuck because I voted against all of it Good for you. <laughs> just on principle libertarian principle and also um there were some you know a lot of constitutional amendments that were being voted on today like six or seven of them here in texas which i which i've never seen before like this um and so i i'm guessing that texas isn't the only place like houston right now don't be dumb, please, Houstonians, for once in your life, don't be dumb and, you know, vote for the right guy for your um, for your mayor. We'll see what happens. Um, but anyway, uh, lots of lots of elections everywhere. Scott, why don't you give us the rundown of what you think today is going to bring? Because we've got elections all over. Well, the, the two main ones that are going on uh, um uh, and this is obviously Tuesday, November 7th, uh, that we're recording this. And as of right now, uh, you get the Mississippi governor's uh, race. Tate Reeves is a Republican incumbent, um, and he's up against Brandon something, uh, who's like a, a guy's like a 45-year-old Democrat. He looks 70. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's like years of hard living or something that this guy's like he looks much older than he is um and but he's run you know kind of a john bell edwards andy Bashir kind of campaign don't think it's gonna work talk to a couple pollsters uh you know they're saying that reeves is i mean it's mississippi it's a democrat can't really get more than 45 46 percent of the vote and they they think that's what this this guy brandon something is gonna top out at um, so probably 54, 46, 55, 45 for Reeves in the Mississippi governor's race. But the interesting one is Kentucky, mm -hmm. because Bashir, who is the Democrat, and Kentucky's a pretty red state. I mean, I think it was 65 percent for Trump in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, but Bashir is like one of these Democrats who, you know, comes from a um, very kind of old school Kentucky aristocrat aristocratic family. Right. Um, he's governed left of center, but not so far left of center that like Joe Sixpack, who doesn't really pay attention, thinks of him as a left wing wacko. Right. Um, so he's kind of skated a little, but along comes Daniel Cameron, who is the Attorney General of the state of Kentucky, who's been involved in a lot of these multi-state lawsuits where state attorneys general have really been kicking the ass of the Biden administration. Um, Cameron's like a real conservative. Um, he's also he's a super articulate, attractive, charismatic, and black, which mm. is like 
really interesting. You got a black Republican who like says all of, you know, like basically sounds like Byron Donalds hmm. and he's running for governor of Kentucky, which, you know, has always sort of been one of the most, um, whatever, uh, old Southern kind of attitude hmm. toward, uh, those types of things. And a month ago, Emerson College pulls the race and Bashir's up 49 to 33. Mm -hmm. um, last week, they pulled the race and it's Cameron 49, Bashir 48. Ooh. So he has just completely shot through the sky. Very good chance he wins. And if he does, a couple of things are true. Number one, <laughs> it's the end of this oh, the Democrats are proving in special elections across the country mm -hmm. that, boy, are they, you know, like, there's momentum. And in every one of these, you know, state legislative races in New Hampshire, where the Democrat wins, mm -hmm. they're spending 10 times the money Republicans are spending right. to try to sustain a narrative. You know, you go spend $300,000 in a state rep race in New Hampshire, right, which is a $40,000 race at the most. Right. Um, you spend this money and then you do a touchdown dance that your guy won 52-48 in a right. special election. Right. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't prove much of anything. So if they lose the Kentucky election, if they spent, I want to say it's $12 million in the Mississippi governor's race so far, 85% of it is out-of-state money. Ooh. Okay, they are, you know, hammering money into Mississippi to try to steal that thing from Reeves. And if that doesn't work, and if it's like 54, 46, 55, 45, like it's a complete just blowout, wet balloon of all this money going in there. Mm -hmm. Like that's the end of this, you know, Biden momentum narrative. Okay, like Biden momentum is such shit. It's it's a shitty that's but and then the other thing is you got the the, the legislative elections in Virginia, right? Which that you know, oh that's pretty big. well result in Republicans taking both houses of the legislature mm -hmm. and really turbocharging um, Glenn Youngkin. Well, uh, I really like the uh, coverage, really portraying Youngkin as like um, Donald Trump light or something. It's hilarious because it's so it's, ridiculous. It, it's, these people are such one trick ponies. Okay. Uh, they're doing the same thing, by the way, with, and, you know, of course we talked about Mike Johnson. They, they have cast Mike Johnson as um, Robert Duvall in the Handmaid's Tale movie. Right. I mean, like, like Mike Johnson is this, you know, well, he's a two bit grifter because he's not rich from having been in Congress over the last Right, you know, six eight years, um, they're like they're all over pouring over his financial statement. He owes hundreds of thousands of dollars on a mortgage. It's like, yeah, like he's an American, right? Right. Well, like, you know, I, speaking of Johnson, your best buddy and pal, he did something today that I'm really thrilled with. He fired the um, oh yeah, the chief of staff guy from McCarthy. And all of this kind of um, so when Devin Nunes was still in the house and did this whole investigation about Chinese money through Sequoia Capital um, affecting elections and involved all over the place and McCarthy killed it because McCarthy was getting money from 
uh, Sequoia Capital and from China Money and from uh, FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried's little outfit. And um, Johnson fired his McCarthy's um, guy, who was like the foreign policy chief of staff to the Speaker of the House or something like that. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But I forget the exact title. Shot basically mean, meaning that China doesn't have a line into the speaker's office anymore. Yep. Hallelujah. Okay. I mean, this is like a big deal. This is like a big deal. Like you want to talk about draining the swamp? Yes, You're exactly. seeing some of this happen. So here's something interesting. Rasmussen came out with a poll today. Yeah. And this is after what, 10 days, two weeks of nonstop media attacks. Mike Johnson's the, you know, right. he's. He's the freaking, you know, he's a theocrat, he's a wacko, mm -hmm. yeah. he's an extremist, mm -hmm. yada, yada, yada. Right. So Rasmussen pulls his approval. Um, 47 up, 29 down. Ooh. Most popular congressional leader in America. Uh -huh. um, That's yeah. great. I know. So, like, in other words, they have beat on this guy for two weeks, mm -hmm. and it has not worked. And what that tells you is um, the American people don't buy it. The American people are not interested in hearing what the media has to say about this guy. These attacks are failing and will fail. Mm -hmm. And they, they're failing for the for the simple reason that Mike Johnson refuses to be canceled. Well, and he's also, when I, I noticed that when he speaks, like um, when he gets in front of cameras, he he is not at all the kind of, I think yeah. in order for that narrative to take hold, the person has to have a, a certain edge or something. And he's right. all smooth all the yeah. way around. And so it's hard to get a, a, your hands around him. And he's, he's just a normal he, person talking he to people. He's, he's Ned Flanders. Like we give him a hard time about the fact that he's Ned Flanders. But he, you know, it's a very like a very measured tone of voice. Right. Very even. He doesn't flail around when he talks. You know, his his head stays relatively um, mm -hmm. st stable when he when he speaks. You know, he's not overly expressive. He's just you know, but he what he says makes sense. Okay, and it's consistent with, um, you know, one thing he says is consistent with the next thing, and there's a there's a certain stability there. Yeah, that is yeah. really attractive in mm -hmm. a time when right. most of the people in politics are freaking clowns. Yeah, um, and you know, and there's a it's a major difference between say you know Johnson and McCarthy. McCarthy, you never got the impression Kevin McCarthy believed what was coming out of his mouth. Oh no, I mean Kevin right? McCarthy like, believed always, it. right. Somebody told him to say this, so he said it. Right, and he, he had this look in his eyes like. I hope this comes out right because I don't know what I'm saying. Like with Johnson, it's the opposite. Okay. He says, no, look, I have believed this all my life. Okay. I studied the Bible. My interpretation of the Bible gave me this as a moral standing or whatever code. And, and I based my philosophy over of that. And this is where it led me to, you know, you're not going to change my mind, but I'll explain it to you all you want. Like this kind of whole thing. Right. And he's, and he's, I mean, he's actually a constitutional lawyer. So he's all his adult life. He has had these, these discussions, these arguments has made these cases and has heard all of the 
the you know the re rejection of it or or resistance to it and has worked through all of that so right. like in other words you can't go to mike johnson and stump him on mm -hmm. any of this public policy stuff because he knows his stuff like he knows it and so it's just a totally different world to be in when you have a leader like that that's like the smartest guy in the room number one mm -hmm. and it's, is totally comfortable in his own skin number two mm -hmm. and number three is unfazable because he actually has faith in a higher power that like if i do the right mm -hmm. thing i'm going to get protected right well that, he's you don't have that in washington and no you so don't it's, it's such a breath of fresh air because of it well i i feel like I almost hesitate to say it, but this it's so improbable that he ended in this position. It's so... Um, you can it, use the it, word if you want. It, you if, can use it. It feels... Miracle. Yeah. Miracle. Feels miraculous. And I have to say, Matt Gates, way to go. Um, yes. What you did... Absolutely. You, you at least gave the House some sober leadership and the Republicans seem somewhat chastened. I've just, I did hear that they came out of a budget, you know, thing, uh, all fighting each other as per usual, but trying to come to an agreement about everything. Fighting over a budget. Everybody does that. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. But anyway, it, it does see, I mean, that is a bright shining spot in our nasty political um, world right now. And I do think that I mean, here's where the Democrats have gone so terribly, terribly wrong is the American people since COVID are paying attention and they're mad. And so yeah. like the local elections became really, really, you know, important. And so I have to say, I was surprised at the clip of voters for a midterm where nothing statewide really, except for like constitutional amendments and stuff like that. There was like nothing scintillating or exciting. Um, and I'm like, Ooh, this is interesting. Um, we'll see what ends up happening. Uh, but everybody's having to tighten up their game. You know, like, I don't know if these bond issues are even going to be passed because the language was so broad that nobody could be sure that the local right. governance, that there was actual local governance. Nobody wants to write a blank check anymore. Nobody wants to put up with this baloney anymore. And so like- Right, and, and nobody gives politicians the benefit of the doubt, which never should have been done to begin with. Never should have been done, like anybody who knows them. It's like, no, uh, yeah, no. no given, giving them the benefit of the doubt is an open invitation to getting more and worse government, right? Okay, like you, have so to, you have to actually tell these people no, constantly until they make the most ironclad case for the smallest growth in government possible. Okay. Um, and then then it's a maybe rather than a no. Right. Okay. So let's get to your book real quick. We have, yeah. we, you have your book coming out, which is all about Obama. Don Serber, our dear friend, Don Serber. Um, wait, who... wait, stop. Because uh, I am told mm -hmm. that whenever the subject of my book comes up, what I have to say is uh -huh. that the name of the book is Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's available at Calamo Press. Uh, you can pre-order it at Barnes & Noble and it books a million now. Uh, okay. So just 
go there and, and type, you know, type in the search engine racism, revenge and ruin by Scott McKay. Um, it will be out next week. Our oh. books are at the printer now. Uh, so like we're all super excited about it. And it I feel really good about the book and we're about to launch into it. But things are happening which make the book unbelievably timely. Right. And uh, we should talk about the Don Serber thing because it's kind of spot on with a lot of what we're saying in the book. So yeah, go ahead. Well, so the the so Don wrote a piece today. He and it was in his email that he sent out, and I get it, and you sent it to me too because it was so good. And basically saying that Obama's uh, henchman, David Axelrod, in this case, uh, is saying that it's time for Biden to step down, that, that you know, Trump is beating Biden in five of the six swing states. Right. And and I'm, I'm guessing- Three of the five, it's like beyond the margin of error. You're talking six, eight points now. Right. It's like really a problem for yeah. the Democrats. And so uh, Obama and his minions want Biden out mm-hmm. and never really wanted Biden much to begin with and want to crown uh, Kamala queen and you know have her you know rig the election and have her get elected or whatever um and so you know don was talking about how the the power behind the throne right now because biden is running around you know like grandpa biden does he even know what he's doing and you know once again i don't know if you saw like they keep taking pictures of him where he's got these cue cards where it has the picture of the reporter and the question he's supposed to ask and it's all pre-done and it's all like glossy and everything like there's nothing spontaneous happening with this guy everything is being done and the uh obama folks aren't happy with biden's embrace of israel or and and the democratic party is worried because um Muslim people are getting mad because they feel like they deserve something for helping getting Democrats elected. And the and and this is something that Obama and his people won't talk about, which is that Muslim people are sick to death of all of this transgender, um, you know, kind of modern woke bull. And so right now, like the the um, polling of Muslims in Michigan is they're all going Republican. And then yeah. you ha- have what's happening with this uh, war in Israel and everybody is kind of like jumping ship and that is freaking the Democrats out. But they really, there's no needle to thread with this because if they go one way, they have a problem. If they go another way, they have a problem. So um They've the DEI stuff, their their multi-culti bullcrap has finally run them into, you know, you remember in um Animal House when the, the uh marching band goes goes gets marched on the into alley the and into the dead end. Yeah. Into the dead end of the alley. I kind of feel like the, this is where this um you know diversity, equity, and inclusion crap has finally led the Democratic Party into a swirling eddy at the end of a you know, alleyway where they just can't get out because to do so, they're going to tick off one of their constituencies. Yeah. A- anyway, so here we are. And this is all about your book, your book, yeah. Reven- Racism, Revenge and Ruin. Revenge, racism. Correct. 
Um, racism, revenge, and ruin. Racism, yeah. re revenge, and ruin. And you, of course, have accurately said that the seeds of all of the stuff that we're seeing now started with Barack Obama, his radical anti-Americanism, his anti-West, and then, yep. you know, playing patty cake and giving money to Iran, helping the terrorists all over the place. And now we have this radicalism that, that Obama was grew, grew up with. Now it's infected the younger generation. This is what the guys like Obama's age, who are all the professors, all the radical professors at all these uh, schools have infected the minds of these young people. And now uh, they, these morally obtuse idiots are the ones, you know, causing a uh, problem on the ground level, you know, attacking yeah. and defacing, you know, things around the um, uh, White House yeah, I mean, and everything. It's, you know, I, we had like one of the chapters in the book is entitled Obama's Red Guard, right? And, you know, it's it was all about the corruption of the institutions, particularly higher education, uh, that led to the manufacture of these morons who are in the streets demonstrating for Hamas in right. America's cities. I mean, like, something that you would have never thought would would happen. And this is the thing. I don't want to beat up on all the kids because the vast majority of the 20-somethings, okay, in this country uh, and the late teens-somethings are not pro-Hamas demonstrators, okay? But those idiots are the active ingredient in the Democrat Party right now. Um, and Obama made them that. Um, he's the one who, you know, kind of opened the door for hardcore anti-Western civilization radicalism to take hold of that party. Mm -hmm. And so you hear these terms like decolonization. Right. That's decivilization. Okay. Right. When you de decolonize whatever Gaza or you know whatever uh uh fringes of the civilized world that you want to pull Western society back from, what you get is an utter and complete murderous barbarism. OK, you get I mean, you get a sliding scale all the way down to cannibalism with some of these complete animals that will then take hold of some of these places when you eliminate Western norms. And we see this over and over and over again. We're seeing it in inner cities all across America. Those are being decolonized as we speak with the the blessing of the machines of Democrats that run these places, okay, that ref that have defunded the police, you know, are refusing to, to put the cops in a position to, to keep law and order. And so you have streets that are literally run by criminals. And the things that happen in those places are unspeakable, okay? Mm -hmm. And this was all something that Obama brought into vogue in his party, okay? Pre-Obama, you did not have the kind of abject evil among Democrat, urban Democrats that ran inner cities in America. You were, they at least, they were very bad at running those cities, but there was at least an effort made to run these places with some degree of competence. And they would go to the business community and say, hey, help us do whatever. 
right? And it would engage in some way, shape, matter, or form with the people in the suburbs. And round about 2009, 2010, you started seeing a complete pullback of Democrats in the inner cities, um, politicians I'm talking about, from the rest of the state, right? And they, they, you know, like I mentioned this, I was on a podcast last week, you know, like Australia splits off from Pangaea and over the, over time, the animals in Australia become like these super weird things that you can't find anyplace else, like a wombat or a kangaroo, right? That's what urban Democrats are now. Like they're completely dissociated from the body politic. And the things that come out of these people's mouths are unrecognizable from anywhere else. You know, you Pramila Jayapal, right? You put her in the suburbs someplace and she gets 10% of the vote and everybody laughs at her how, how wacko she is, right? But, you know, in where Seattle, where she's from, like, yeah, okay, that's normal. Cori Bush, AOC, Ilan Omar. These are all inner city urban Democrats from big blue cities that are divorced everywhere else. And pre-Obama... Those people were not electable even in those places, okay? You had some hardcore lefties, don't get me wrong, but there was some shred of connection between them and and somewhere else. And they were mostly interested, even though they would pop off and say weird things from time to time, they were mostly interested in like constituent service, right? Like get me something delivery that I can bring back to my folks because that's my... (laughs) You know, that's my stock and trade. Before AOC was Joe Crowley, right, who was a, a you know, old school kind of union Democrat uh, kind of guy. And it was all about bringing swag back to his district, right? He would pop off about Republicans. But at the end of the day, it was all about, look, I'm here to, with a shovel to try to bring money back. And you take him out and like, here's AOC. And I don't necessarily totally agree with her on this. One of the first things she did when she came to Congress was, you know, absolutely throw a fit about tax breaks for Amazon back in her district and lost 25,000 jobs to the district. Now, I'm actually at the point where I'm good with telling Amazon, no, you're going to pay full price taxes just like everybody else because mom and pop retail that you're displacing, they paid full price. So why in the hell should you, you get a break? But the whole point is, that's not really what AOC was about. She just hated corporate America, and so she she tubed the thing. Joe Crowley would have probably taken a bribe from Amazon to, to tout their deal. But that's the difference between sort of old-school machine Democrat and new-school Barack Obama radical community organizing Democrat. And the latter is what that party is now. Massive, massive change. So... How does this relate back to what Serber was talking about with the presidential thing? It's all machine politics, okay? They they don't like Biden anymore because he's not a he's not a competent puppet, right? They think Kamala Harris is a is a more stable minion than Biden is, and so they. I want. Don't you think she's less independent? I mean, Biden for is oh, a yeah. crust, is a crusty old guy who is going to do what he wants, you know, and and has some history, even though he's just a complete moron. But right. you know, Kamala, talk about a puppet. That woman. Yeah. yeah. 
She, anyway. I mean, she will do whatever she's told. Right. Her whole political career has been an exercise in doing what she's told. Right. Okay. Yeah. So they've decided, but but here's here's the machine aspect of it. And there's like a, a I mean, we could do an entire podcast tracing back to this, but um, Obama's really start as an adult moving into what passed for his professional life early on um, pretty much came from this conference that he went to his senior year at Columbia. Okay. And it was put on by the democratic socialists of America. Okay. And there were a whole bunch of speakers at this thing. Um, one of the main ones was a guy named Michael Harrington, who was this sort of left-wing intellectual, but one of his sort of innovations was that, you know, um, moving from sort of a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary mindset among socialists to a community organizing mindset. In other words, we have to use like Alinsky's tactics to go gather up this group of kind of uh, unsatisfied people, gin them up, and get as many of them out to vote as possible. And that's how we're going to like magnify the number of people out there. We don't have to convince everybody else of anything, because if we can gen up more numbers than the other side, we can, we can win and we can affect our revolution. Okay. That's essentially the, the democratic socialists of America mindset. Right. Which is 100% the Barack Obama mindset, okay? So when you start seeing the AOCs and the Cory Bushes and the Jamal Bowmans, who like, you know, this is this is how freaking Democratic that guy is, small d Democratic. He pulls the fire alarm to keep from losing a vote, right? Like in other words, like what that says is just volumes, right? About like who these people are. Um, but anyway, that's where Barack Obama comes from, from all the way back, right? Didn't give a damn about America. Frank Marshall Davis, the old freaking communist, was his was his intellectual, if not biological, father. Um, and, you know, kind of goes from this progression from he's a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary to this kind of community organizing socialist. And where this kind of leads to Kamala Harris replacing Biden, if you cared about persuading the American people, okay, you wouldn't think at all about moving Kamala Harris to the top of the ticket as your, like you would, like, I can't sell her. This is crazy. I'm not going to do it. Barack Obama has such disdain and contempt for the American people that he will put her at the top of the ticket if he has the power to do so. And I think you and I both believe he does. Um, and all the evidence suggests that he does. Um, because if you remember, there were 25 Democrats running for president in 2020, okay? They picked the two Obama puppets, neither one of whom had any kind of real support. And that's who ended up number one and number two on that ticket. Don't tell me Barack Obama is not the power behind the throne. Okay, he is. So, but the point is, he doesn't care that the American people can't stand Kamala Harris. He doesn't care. He wants her, and so he's going to put her at the top of the ticket. And you're well, going to. So wait a minute. Don't you think it's just? I mean, he also trusts his machine. 
Yes, he that's is the- so confident. And and the that's thing the is, point. Hillary Clinton was too so confident in the machine that they had. So she didn't need yeah. to go to Wisconsin. She didn't need to do go to Pennsylvania more. She she knew that the outcome was preordained. And Barack yeah. Obama certainly acts like that now with the situation. The problem yeah. is that this time it's going to be a lot more difficult. And I, I go back to my conspiracy theory that I posited, which is that they wanted Donald Trump because they thought it would be easier to rig the election and make it seem like um, he right. his negatives are so high, nobody would be willing to vote for yeah, him. But, but the problem the there- You didn't think that guy could actually win, right? You didn't think he could actually yeah, win. He does win. You know, right. So, so the yeah. problem now for them, though, is that the polling and, you know, it's got to be worse than what we're seeing is so bad for Biden yeah. that right. now they can't they don't have that cover. It's it's removed that cover. And with Trump being tied up with all of these legal things, it just makes all the Americans matter. And they're remembering, yeah. you know, we didn't have a world war when Trump was in power. We didn't right. have an economy where you couldn't buy gas and and you couldn't buy a house, and so like now it's 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 bad enough that even with Trump's high negatives, he could he very easily could still win. And you know, I, and can I just as an aside, this yeah, is go completely for random and not about Obama or your book, but I am tired of on our side the DeSantis people. Stop it. Or just say straight up that we're hoping that Trump is in prison so we can have this guy. Because it's not happening. He might yeah. win Iowa, maybe, but I doubt that too. What are we doing here? The, well, the most annoying I mean, people gonna... on, on uh, Twitter are these. And the well, thing is, I like DeSantis, but this well, is just too. ridiculous. And, and, and here before, I've you know, I've had a lot of sympathy with those guys and I get it. Like they're paying you to be on Twitter and, and right. do engagement. So, I mean, some of this is these guys, these guys are just doing their job, but right. you know, the problem is it's very obvious that this is not his moment. Right. Right. And 2028 could very well be his moment. Mm-hmm. Right. So at this point, don't blow 2028 is the real thing. Like, don't blow 2028 because you will go into 2028 as as the presumptive favorite Um, because when you go back to Florida, at some point he will, okay, you have the ability to govern and show the American people what it looks like when you have a, whatever, Trump 2.0 running things, okay? And he's already shown it's good. Right. That's the reason that he got as far as he's gotten. Um, there was somebody, I can't remember who wrote it. Uh, and I, I, should, I should look it up real quick, but somebody wrote something that was so freaking good about the mistakes that DeSantis made that he hasn't owned up to and, um, and the cost of those. Uh, and one of them was he came out with exactly the right statement on Ukraine which was, hey, this is a territorial dispute between Russia and Ukraine, and it's not in America's interest to go to the the mattresses for it. Mm -hmm. And 
the inside crowd got up his butt so freaking hard on that that he ended up walking it back, which, you know, was a, I mean, it's, you can understand it, but it was a mistake because he, he was competitive with Trump at that point and fell off the radar a good bit um, after it. And it was because the impression that gave off was this guy is just like all the rest of these politicians right. were trying to get. And I don't think that's true of him. Okay. No, but, but he took advice from the same people who give advice to all of these other blow dried idiot politicians. And he looked like a blow dried idiot politician. The other thing that, that, uh, that this piece pointed out was, um, and we will have the link on this. I will find it and I will, we'll do it. But the other thing that, um, that pointed out was, um, when uh, the first Trump indictment came down, and it was the one stupid thing in New York about the hush money, right? right. And so DeSantis kind of cracked wise and says, look, I don't know what's involved in paying hush money to, 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 uh, to porn stars. It's not my thing. And like, I didn't think it was a bad line at the time, but it didn't resonate with the people that he needed because... Your value proposition is I can be Trump without all the stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, but you have to walk a pretty thin line there because they're not convinced that you're Trump, right? And, you know, this is the problem with being a governor, right? People in Florida may believe this guy is Trump 2.0. People in Idaho or you know, Arizona or Maine. I don't really, I hear this guy's a good governor, but I don't know anything about him. So when he pops off about Trump, they go, same old, same old. Mm -hmm. And you never get an opportunity to show, hey, I'm like actually the no drama Trump. Mm -hmm. I think like those two things were pointed out in this piece and I think that's pretty much spot on. And so, yeah, okay, it's not really his moment. But he didn't read the moment that he had. Um, and I think right. a lot of that is this is a young guy, hasn't really been in politics all that long, um, moved up very fast and probably needed to get his nose bloodied in a presidential race for a cycle before he'd be ready to do something big like win. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen it. And I also don't think he's got presidential people around him. Well, okay. Can we talk about that a bit? Uh, yeah. There's there's somebody who I could name, who we both know, who gives politicians the worst advice. I've seen this person wreck some really good politicians, and uh, I don't. I'm not going to say the name. I mean, there's more than one of those. But, oh, there's plenty. Right. So let's let's we we both know a fair number of them. Um, and it's a difficult business. I will say this, you know, when you're consulting a politician, they have to maintain, you know, be true to their own voice on on the one hand. And on the other hand, moving from a state level or even like the region within a state to having a national presence is a big shift. And there's other considerations, but there's a couple consultants that I know, one in particular, 
who has ruined, I think, pretty much every politician's chances that he is who he's ever touched their campaign. And um and some more uh you know house members senators that sort of thing i want to do a press release to <laughs> to republicans in general and be like this person is a very right. nice person uh take the this, record don't hire him do well and don't listen to him you know yeah. be friends with him have a beer but don't make any decisions based on what he says because he's wrong. His instincts are wrong and whatever. Yeah. And so like I see this and I think, wow, you know, there's some and people ding Trump for this. But my goodness, there's there's a lot of blame to go around in the Republican Party for these kind of characters. And um and yes, it's a tough business. And yes, it's a difficult thing to predict which way the American public is going to go um, on certain issues and kind of know in advance. And they're all talking all the time. It's difficult. Okay, I get it. However, well, and we could talk and we could talk about the structural issues with not fighting in the culture and how difficult it makes it. Like we could get in all that. That's probably a separate podcast. It really not is. We right. talked about it before, but anyway. Right. This specific case. There's just a couple stinkers who I see consistently ruin the careers of politicians. And I feel bad about it because the politicians themselves aren't bad, but they're getting terrible advice. And, yeah. and it's just like, no, you know, so some, in some cases, like right now, if you were advising a Republican, I'll tell you what I would be talking about and just beating the drum to death about it is one, the border, the yeah. is an absolute you know atrocity it's why trump got elected the first time uh he he moved away from the messaging the second time it was a mistake yep. and it should be the messaging absolutely front and center now uh to the economy and you know simple things like um i actually think uh, that we're at a moment where all of the, I just did a radio hit here in Houston. It went on today, I think uh, it was pre-recorded, but we we're talking about the deficit and the debt. And one of the points that I made about all of this is that, because he asked me, the, the host asked me, can it, can it be saved? Can anything be done at this point? And I was like, well, and I'm curious about your opinion about what I said. So I'm going to say it right yeah. now. So That's my- fine. So my um, perspective was that, you know, when you have a tumor, I, I made a medical analogy. When you have a, a cancerous tumor and you can cut it out, it's circumscribed, it's easy. Yes, you're going to have a scar. Yes, the body's going to have to recover. Then it gets further out and maybe it metastasizes, but you have chemotherapy and you can kill it. At a certain point, the problem has gone so systemic, all you can do is try to keep the host alive for as long as possible because to get rid of the cancer would be to kill the host. Yep. And I'm wondering if we're not there with this financial catastrophe that, that we're facing, this demographic catastrophe, this financial catastrophe that we're facing because we've got boomers aging and, um, you know, like we've heard for years about social security. Well, 
all of these things that have been talking talked about for years, and I'm not talking climate change, you know, that thing everybody's screaming about, nuclear war, everybody you know was afraid of in the ozone layer, whatever. Nuclear war is actually something we should be afraid about now, like a world right. war. And right. the debt stuff and the deficit stuff is actually something that could cause the world economic house of cars to finally just, you know, blow away. And no one's talking about this. So like, right. you know, and I'm curious because nobody left or right talking about it. And what's the solution? I don't know that there is one. Um, well, the solution is a massive financial shock and a Great Depression that burns, you know, the, the, the solution is the forest fire, right? You know, when, when you've got a forest that is choked with undergrowth, okay, then the forest fire is the way you fix that because it burns away the undergrowth and it burns away the old dead trees and it and it clears the field for uh, the saplings uh, to grow into, you know, to big trees. That's, that's the answer. Now, forest fires are very painful and they're very destructive. Um, but eventually the financial system that all of this debt has built uh, and the economic oligopoly that has been created, which now you've got all of these corporations which are run by utter incompetence who've been uh, promoted on the basis of, you know, DEI and, and you know, um, sort of woke compliance. Um, and, you know, and they've choked the, the entrepreneurial life out of corporate America for the most part. And like you had all these companies, like I read a thing today, you know, all these companies in the car industry that have, that, well, we're thrown in with EVs. And now they're all like, we're not going to be, all EVs by 2035 or 2030 or any of that. And in fact, we're going to stop making them because we can't sell them, right? right? And we've poisoned our assembly lines by trying to, to convert this over. The public doesn't want it. We're losing money hand over fist over it. And at some point, the government subsidies don't cut it. And they're all reaching that now in the middle of a of an auto worker strike that, I mean, like, that whole industry could burn away and then all of the assets get snapped up by new companies that then do what the market wants to do. And really, the only thing that's kind of stopping that is the federal government's continued involvement. Because if you got a, if you did away with, say, CAFE standards, OK, you would have the big three probably all go into bankruptcy. Ford might survive. The rest of them would. And then you would have a fire sale and people would buy up all the assets, the factories, the, you know, the, the supply contracts and what have you, and start making different cars, like in no time flat. And in three to five years, you'd have a whole new auto industry that does what the, the, what the country wants and makes new cars for far less than what they're, they're currently charging. And the consumer would be so much better off. Now, would the environment be better off? Um, probably, right? People you know, don't want a car that, um, you know, that that uh, when gas gets to four dollars a gallon breaks you, or that, um, you know, that it produces emissions that turns your city into a, into Beijing with the smog. Like people don't want to buy that. Okay, 
the market will take care of those considerations. But rather than having to pay $40,000 for a not that great new car, you're back to paying 18, which is probably doable if you get rid of a lot of the regulatory snafus that these companies have to go through. I mean, like now you look at something that services the economy. And oh, by the way, those companies grow, their stock takes off, they hire more people, right? And all of a sudden you have some dynamism in your economy again. Industry after industry, these conditions exist where you have a small number of very large corporations which are incompetently run that are locked into their market share because of government policy, right? Okay. All of that, if you want to fix America, if you want to get to the point where you're not running $1.7 trillion deficits, if you want to have an economy that produces housing, cars, uh, you know, consumer goods, net worth, and so forth for average Americans that this has not been true of since 2020, okay? Uh, all of that, to get there, you're going to have to have the forest fire. And- the forest fire is coming no matter what. Mm -hmm. The question is whether it's a controlled burn or if it's a wildfire. And my guess is it's going to be a wildfire because nobody has the balls to do a controlled burn. Well, uh, you know, just to your point about the cars, I saw something funny on uh, Twitter about electric cars. This guy took a video and people were lined up at three in the morning in, in L.A. County. Oh, with their electric city. vehicles it couldn't get it couldn't get any any place where they could hook up with it and of course like the electrical grid can't handle it and so right. i i read this other guy who's talking about who and he, about all of this and he said it's impossible what they're trying to do is impossible yes have have hybrids okay so that maybe you're saving the environment some but america cannot with its current um infrastructure and even with the technology itself because he was re he was talking about making big rigs that were electric he's like it's impossible they cannot go they can't he because he's in the logging industry he's talking yeah. about how much weight that they have to deal with and how quickly they burn through an electric it's a, so like and people won't hear it it's like these things are impossible you're you we can't do this Right. And then I've seen, have you seen all the pictures of like mobile generators, which are like gas and oil diesel. generators to, to charge electric cars? Yeah, diesel generators. It's just insane. It's like, no, what? It's, it's, it's utterly asinine. All it's asinine. Yeah, that's the word, asinine. So anyway, we have all of these situations. And, and really, so back to telling Republicans what we should be talking about. There are so it is a target rich environment. And and that's not even talking about the cultural things, which well, is really landing or has landed. I mean, Young can just yeah. focus on that, and that's how he got elected. Well, and he look, hasn't I, I got think it's, I think it's I think it's pretty simple. I think you do three or four things, okay, because all of them are massive winning issues. Okay. Mm -hmm. Number one, yes, the border. And you talk about we need a wall and we need a deportation policy. Yeah. And I, I've got kind of a side idea, like, and this may be a little pie in the sky, but I actually think it fixes the problem if somebody were to take it on. 
Mm-hmm. You go down to Central America, you find yourself a plot of land that maybe has a river running through it, and it's by by the you know the the Caribbean Sea or the Gulf of Mexico or whatever. Okay, um, so in other words, like a place that that's a site that works to build a giant city. Okay, mm-hmm. and you go to whatever Guatemala, Honduras, whatever you said. Look, we're buying this land from you. Like we can take it. But we'd rather buy it. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a colony here. We are going to build a Singapore or a Hong Kong. Okay. It's going to be a free trade zone. It's going to be a tax haven. Okay. It's going to be an industrial manufacturing, whatever. It isn't going to be a democracy. We're going to hire somebody just like the British had somebody running Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And this is where we're going to dump all the people that want to come to America. You want to come to America, you go here first. You got to live here for seven to 10 years and you better not have a criminal record. You better learn English. You better like get all the skills that you you need by being a a citizen of this place first. Okay. And it will be an English speaking colony of the United States that you go to first. And yes, you will be exploited for cheap labor. All right. But you're going to learn skills that when you move up to America, if, if you do, like you'll do well. And oh, by the way, to move from this place to America, you're going to pay $50,000 entry fee. This so, sounds like a sci-fi book, uh, Scott. It well, doesn't it sound like does, any, anything could actually happen. Well, look, I mean, well, elements of it have already been done, right? Singapore and Hong Kong, that's what they were, okay? Mm-hmm. The British had the stones to put that together, Okay. Now, it wasn't a way station to go move someplace else in which our thing would have to be. But the point is, you have a place to put these people, right? So how many millions have come in, though? I mean, we've got like the state of Kansas coming this year alone. How many people live in Hong Kong? Okay. And I mean, Hong Kong is a small place. It's like 10, 12 million people that live there. Yeah. So you can put people, you can put people in a place like that. Okay, and I mean, there's factories and there's like, you know, you you can do all of those things. And especially if you then say, okay, we're going to do pretty large tariffs against China. Right. Guess what? All of those companies start making their stuff in New Boulevard or whatever the hell we're going to call this place. Right. Because it's the place to be. Right. Do something like that. But say, okay. you're not allowed to just cross that river and all of a sudden you get all the free stuff and you're, you know, can, you're not even an American, but you get to go to the ER and get free health care and your kids get free. No, no, no. Screw all that. You have to go. But I'm not going to be cruel and make you go back to El Salvador. Okay? You can go to this place. And you know what? Maybe you can eventually come here if you get to the point where you, you know, raise the money to pay your way in. Or if you've already been in a position where you can pay us the $50,000 and not be an illegal, you can get a green card. All right. Now, put that out there so it's not, oh, I'm just going to take all the little children and run them back to the, the shithole they came from, which is how they're going to characterize a mass deportation program like Eisenhower had in the 50s, for example. Well, they're going to characterize it that, uh, that way, but the Americans people, their hearts have hardened. And they I agree. Said, I agree. Uh, 
So that's not going to play anymore. I just don't think. No, no. I Like, I totally agree with that. Well, and, and we talked about the Mike Johnson poll, which is a pretty good example of what you're saying is like these narratives don't fly. But the point is they don't have that when you say, no, 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 no. I'm doing this other thing, right? Like I'm going to, there's an option here because the big thing is it's like, well, you can't send them home because they like, they can't go home, right? They, they need asylum. We're like, fine. We have a place. Guess what? We're bringing all these people there. They're going to build a little paradise where this thing is. And if it doesn't turn out to be a paradise, it's not really our problem because they're not here. But the point is, it's an opportunity. It's an option. It's something different. It's a creative solution that's being had that is not just the same old, same old. And, you know, we know what we need to do, but the media is going to beat us up and half of our people are going to lose heart and, you know, crawfish away, and this whole thing goes south. You have to think outside of that box, and the way to do it is to offer a third option. That's mm -hmm. what the colony is. So okay. that's the border, right? Oh, that's okay, the wait a minute. We should have Baker Hughes, because they run all these, um, plan like the planned communities do, or BlackRock go down and, like, build the build a thing yes. and then manage it. <laughs> like yeah, they did. no, like, literally, you green, can. Like you they can, did the green zone in Iraq. You can take, yes, you can take all of the, um, well, and see, that's the whole thing. So you have this sort of. I really uh, don't feel like I should be encouraging you in this idea, but because this sounds pie in the sky, but okay. Well, but here's the thing. So yeah, it's a whole bunch of defense contractor swag. Right. But, but it has the potential for a payoff down the road. Number one, you're getting rid of all the illegals and you're saving that money. Mm -hmm. The second thing is. When you build this thing, here's a factory, here's this, here's this other thing. And all of a sudden, this place runs at a profit because you're not going to have a welfare state in that place. Hong Kong and Singapore don't have welfare states. No. Right? You don't work, you don't eat. That's how that works over there. So anyway, that's the border, right? Okay. So here's that. The second thing is crime. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's not even so much here are our solutions to fix crime. Because everybody knows that we did a fairly decent job with crime up until a few years ago. Right. We were generally speaking a pretty safe country other than the extreme inner cities that Obama Democrats ran. Everywhere else in America was really pretty safe. Everything, well, even in those places, things were fine until the Soros DAs got in and just started letting loose all of the hardened criminals. And that's my message on crime that I would offer, which is, hey, none of this stuff is that complicated. Okay. You go to, you, you know, you commit a crime, you go to jail, plain and simple. The DA needs to do his job. The chief of police needs to do his job. Stop acting like cops are a bunch of, you know, um, uh, you know, bunch of thugs in uniforms. That's not what this is. You know, yeah, we'll pay cops some more and we'll do these different things. But at the end of the day, this is about attitude. And we're not going to tolerate criminals. And we're certainly not going to tolerate Black Lives Matter, which is an unofficial lobby for street criminals. We're done with all of that crap. Mm -hmm. And then it ties into the third thing, which is anti-woke. Mm -hmm. All of it across the board. No to the trannies. No to the freaking criminals. No to the race hustlers. All right. No to any of that shit. We want to be America. The country is miserable. You people made us miserable. And so right. we're done. And this actually has a little bit of a cultural piece 
where it's like every time there's a movie where the girl beats the living shit out of the uh, out of the guys, or every time there's, hey, we took this old movie and now we've recast it so that like the mm -hmm. white European characters are all Idris Elba, right, mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. And you say, okay, enough of this shit. We don't need that. That's that all of that. Nobody, nobody is made happier by that. Okay. Right. So yes, we're going to embrace what we've always been as Americans. And we're going to reject this woke religion because it's crap and nobody wants it. Here's the thing you want to talk about. We were talking about the, the, the Muslim Democrats in places like Michigan or whatever. Let me tell you how you get all of their votes is you come out strong against the woke bullshit. Because they hate it. They hate the DEI. They don't like the critical race theory piece either. Because like you get sort of middle class Muslims in place like Dearborn, all right? Mm -hmm. And you start throwing DEI at them. And they're like, these are the lazy people that live in Detroit that want me to feel guilty about that. And I come from a hellhole, right? Like, I don't want to hear any of this. So that your life is so difficult. Like they, you know, like mm -hmm. they were at a place where bombs fell all the time and they came to America. And then you're like, oh, yeah, well, your skin's lighter than these people, so you should feel guilty. Let me tell you how offended they get at that. The Hispanics is the same way, okay? They don't believe right. I mean, You know, you come from an immigrant background, and then they're going to tell you, oh, yeah, well, you have an advantage. Right. They don't believe that. And so there's this underlying um, dissension and disdain for the Ibram X. Kendi's of the world who, you know, want to perpetuate this victim mentality. They don't want to hear any of it. And so the first Republican that comes along and, and speaks to those people is like, you hear this? This is you they're talking about. You're the privileged one. They say they're white privilege, but you're white adjacent. How do you like them apples? And, and the answer to that is, well, I think I would like to like hang somebody from a tree rather than put up with any of this crap one more minute. So that, that's number three. And the fourth thing is inflation yeah. and Bidenomics. Plain and simple, you can't buy a house or or you can't sell a house because, yeah, you can sell it, but then you have to buy something else and you can't afford the thing that you're going to buy. You would end up with a less less of a house than you currently have if you sold your place and tried to buy something else. Like that's how screwed up this housing market is. These idiots are running around talking about, hey, core inflation is down. It's like, are the prices down? Because the damage is done. Okay. Well, the thing just, is that core inflation is down for like the last couple of months. It 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 doesn't take into account the seventeen to twenty percent. It's increased exactly right. over the last couple of years, and that's, that's what, what everybody is feeling. And yeah, that's what I'm far saying. outstripped the raises and money that people. Yeah, it's make. like the argument is, hey, we're not making it as worse anymore. <laughs> right. And it's, no, asshole. Yeah. You broke these people. Okay. They're all they're all taking on credit card debt at 29% just to pay the freaking bills. And you're patting yourself on the back that the debt the horses are out of the barn and you just close the barn door. Right. right? right. That's a super, super powerful indictment of Democrat policies. Okay. Yeah. You do those four things. I don't even know that you need to do anything else. I wouldn't even talk about the Israel-Palestine uh, thing, I wouldn't even talk about it. Everybody knows what the Republican position is, which is we're all for Israel, and if they clean out Gaza 100%, we're fine with it. The only way I would bring something up with this is just say that Biden is the master of chaos. That it, oh, under, under yeah. his presidency, 
the world has become a less safe place because nobody trusts America to defend the, the right thing. And so the bad people in the world have decided that they can move and Biden's weakness and America's weakness has made it dangerous. And and we know that this I is just, true. I just call them the war party. You're the well, war party. The tax and the war. Obama was in, you started the war in Libya that got um, uh, the ambassador killed, okay? You start, you know, ISIS came about because you guys didn't freaking take care of that. You've given Iran all this money and now we have this war in Israel. You, you like, what are you doing in Ukraine? I don't know, like, what's the exit strategy because you want to keep that war going forever? Like, you're the war party. When we had a guy in office, there wasn't war. Now there's war everywhere. Everywhere. You're the war party. Whether you're starting it or you're not smart enough not to start it, or you certainly can't stop it, you're you're you're, you're the war party. And you know the thing of it is, is that people are coming off of Ukraine because they realize there's no exit strategy, and everybody knows what the exit strategy is. The war is literally. Trench warfare, World War One style. If you pop your head up out of the trench, you get shot dead. Okay, those lines are not moving, right? The Ukrainians tried to move it; they couldn't move it. The Russians pretty soon are going to try to move it; they're not going to be able to move it. Okay, it's time to go to the peace table. It was okay? time a year ago. This is ridiculous. I know, but like at this point, the country yeah. starts to realize, okay, like what are we doing here? It's like billions of dollars that we do not have. That when we send that to Ukraine causes inflation here at home, so your kids don't eat, so that Vladimir Zelensky and the rest of the the cronies in, in Ukraine can buy more places in freaking Crete and Cyprus yes. to stash their freaking swag. Billions, okay? because they've right. skimmed and billions off Ukraine? of our money. Have yeah. they taken any territory back? No. Right? Have they? Are they killing more Russians in there? No, like so. Like, what's the benefit of more of this money going to Ukraine, as opposed to, hey, time to cut the losses. Let's put you all together at the peace table and resolve this. And if it means that the Russians get to keep what they've already taken, you know, I'm not going to say that uh, it's, you know, that's to the benefit of the people of Ukraine. But you know what? At this point, to the benefit of the people of Ukraine, to stop dying. To stop dying, and this is, and dying. this is, and the thing, the thing that makes me angry is this was a foregone conclusion. We've talked about this a year ago. We talked about this, and yeah. the, and the thing that pisses me off is that people on the right were saying, "Oh, you just don't love Ukraine." No, actually, I do. I don't want that place raised to the ground, and then, and then have exactly the situation we have now, where you've just killed a whole generation of young men, and. Uh, and women, and now the the place is gutted. And, well, and I mean, it's and, not even so much that you've killed all these people. It's that everybody's left. Well, there's that. Population, too. the place is like down by a third or something. I mean, you've had something like 15 million Ukrainians pick up and take off. And they're not making that into this massive refugee crisis, okay? No, they've been absorbed into Europe. Ukrainians are not undesirables to all of these other countries that they're going to. Right. Right. Um, but I mean, it's way more people than like left out of Venezuela. Right. Okay. And I mean, you know, that that's a massive, massive number of people that Venezuelans have all come here. And frankly, I'll take all the Venezuelans because when people flee communism, 
they tend to be pretty good Americans. So come on up, fellas. But I mean, uh, it, this is one of these things where wise leadership, a, well more than a year ago, would have at least opened the back channel to the Russians and said, look, you know, without appreciating or um, or approving of what you've done, uh, we do want to stop the killing. Okay, so like you know, what are the core aims that you're trying to achieve here, and can they be achieved without conquest? But the right? thing is, is that would never happen because the point of the Ukraine war was to enrich Americans, and um, and so now with the war going on in Israel. You know, there's quiet talk about coming to the table with the Russians finally. And I was like, yeah, because there's another war where people can make money. The other right. thing that is it, it, under the Biden administration, I mean, it's such a target rich environment, is we have a recruiting problem in the military, in our military, because of all the woke stuff. We have, I don't know if you realize this, but I was talking to somebody and uh, Boeing has been been under a uh, cyber attack now for um, like three, four days. Right. And um, this is an attack on our, um, you know, military complex, actually, and the pipeline for bombs and planes and stuff. And no one's saying anything about it. It is a ransomware. Uh, Boeing hasn't played the paid the ransom. So you have that problem. You have a military recruitment problem. There was, um, you know, the China, the Chinese are up to no good over in the South China Sea. And then we have, um, I can't remember where I was reading this and I, I um, something about our ships being cornered or something. Basically what, what weakness begets weakness is what yeah. my point is. And so like this kind of thing starts to happen. And just like in your personal life, when one bad thing leads to another and then it starts kind of rolling or conversely, one good thing and then another good thing and things right. are starting to happen yeah, for you. The momentum is a real thing. Momentum is a real thing. Yeah. And right now with the Biden-Obama leadership, we have momentum going in a terrible direction. And then they're persecuting anyone who disagrees with that direction. Yeah, that's right. Oh, by the yeah, way, did you see the um, uh, South Park episode making fun of Kathleen K Kennedy and Disney and all the woke like stuff? I haven't seen it, but I've seen like stuff about it. I actually watched the Critical Drinkers like little review that he did on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it, but again like that is a that was a takeoff on incompetent corporate management right mm -hmm. and how the woke culture destroys everything that it touches mm -hmm. um and you know like and i come back to this sort of same bit of optimism that i that i do all the time which is that you know everything woke turns to shit trump was right about that and mm -hmm. the democrat machine is based on woke and therefore, it won't last forever, right? And the question really is how much damage it does before everything collapses. Now, we have talked in this podcast about all kinds of different iterations of things collapsing, mm -hmm. right? 
And I think the server piece is sort of the overarching um, uh, description of like, this is at the very top. They are reduced to changing Biden out for Kamala Harris, right? Mm -hmm. Which I said all along was like, this is what was going to happen because there wasn't anybody else short of Michelle Obama. And we now know Michelle Obama is like not going to happen. Okay. Um, you don't think you don't think that um she, Newsom... she refuses to do it. No, Gavin Newsom is gonna wait until 2028. Mm -hmm. So like, you think he's Gavin making Newsom the Newsom said when and we okay. talked about this four or five podcasts ago. When Gavin mm -hmm. Newsom said, you know, look, if it's not Biden, it's Kamala Harris, mm -hmm. that was him like picking them out and saying, okay, choke on it. And I'll be there to pick up the pieces in 2028. Like that was, he's already made that announcement. He has put that out there. He will wait because he can stay governor of California and, and, you know, survive on the public employee unions and big tech and Hollywood and whatever. And, you know, things will keep getting worse in California, but nobody's really paying attention. Um, so he, like, he can do what he's doing, uh, but they don't have anybody else. You can't go with Pritzker or Gretchen Whitmer or Phil Murphy or like you don't like none of those are, are viable. They would have had to have gotten in the race eight months ago. Um, and and so you, you don't have it. You get this guy, Dean Phillips, running in Minnesota, who's probably going to do a lot better than people think in the Democrat primaries. All right. But he's going to get 20, 25 percent of the vote. All right. And he will he will, you know, sort of make himself this kind of problematic figure for the Democrats. Um, and then, you know, like they either have to hold on and like Cerber's wrong. I don't know that he is. Mm -hmm. Or when they, if and when they flip the switch, they have to flip it to Kamala Harris at this point. They don't have anybody else. Okay, what do you think her chances, and this will be my last question and we've got to be done, but what do you think her chances are? Her head up against Trump? Mm-hmm. Zero. She can't beat Trump. Zero chance she can beat Trump. Everybody knows there's no chance she can beat Trump because, yes, you can get the core Democrat vote, but can you get it out to vote? And I don't know that you can if that is, I mean, let's look, make Joe Biden a lame duck president where like his own people don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. All right. And that becomes a bull in a china shop. Mm -hmm. And he does so much damage to the. I mean, he may do it anyway, just because he's freaking not all there anymore. But like, if you if you tell Joe Biden, okay, you're out, you can't run anymore. What kind of what kind of hissy fit does he throw? What kind of temper tantrum do you get out of Joe Biden? Who I, I think the question is, what kind of temper tantrum do you get out of Jill Biden? Because this, I think she's running the show. Functionally, it's the same. But you're right. right. I mean, yeah. like between the two of them. It's it's you know two of the four horsemen, right? Um, and so then you you know and like so you're going to put this in the hands of Kamala Harris to try to to try to hold all of it together. She's got zero competence to do any of that. The average American is more capable for this kind of stuff than Kamala Harris is. And yes, it's Obama's crew that's running everything. I get that. All right. But you still have to have some degree of front man, okay? And she can't do any of that. Everything that comes out of her mouth is a word salad. And so you're going to have a country in crisis 
with a doddering old man that you just kicked out of the presidential race, and you're going to the vice president that nobody has confidence in now, and sure, you're now going to put her political skills on display, such as they are, okay, against against the Republican that you have fired all of your bullets against. Right. There is nothing new they can say about Donald Trump that is going to make any movement on the American people. It would have to be something that Trump just did. And, and Trump has just done everything that he could ever freaking do, right? Like he, he has said all of the disqualifying things on Truth Social. I mean, at this point, it's repetitive and who cares, all right? Okay, speaking of Trump saying crazy stuff, did you see what he said in his trial today, which I laughed at out loud? The, the thing, I'm the intentionally not paying attention, but go ahead. Okay, so this is just a, a funny thing. And this is why Trump is, he's sharp. I mean, for his age. So basically the prosecutor was asking him why he didn't in um, Scotland or something, why he didn't build a hotel there. And he just deadpanned it and responded and said, I own a castle. <laughs> I was like, that's the best comeback ever. Why build a hotel when I have a castle? Like, Look, everything about that trial is inadvisable. Comes back to my whole point about Barack Obama does not care what the American people think. He's no. going to ram it down our throat. And that's like what that is the effect that he's had on right. America. The Democrat Party in specific is I don't care what you think. Right. You're going to get my way and you're going to get it good and hard. That's right. what this trial is. There are no victims. Who right. did Donald Trump defraud, right? Nobody, nobody. They're the biggest banks in the world with the most expensive underwriting departments in the world decided, yeah, loan them the money. Right. And well, you, you overvalued your collateral for these loans. He paid back the loans. Right. So they're, so they're under collateralized loans. So what? That's the bank's problem, okay? They're right. the one, like this takes two to tango to make a loan. Everything about this. Nobody's crying because they got their money. I mean, who cares anyway? It's just ridiculous. Everything about this flies in the face of commerce. Right. Not American. No, like basic commerce is I'm going to like, I'm going to punish you because I don't like how you valued your, your business that you went and got a loan. And it's like, yeah, but are you the lender? Well, no, I'm the state. It's like, were all of these things done in the state? Mm, not really. And then, well, let's prosecute him anyway, right? We're gonna we're gonna file everything about this is, and then you have this judge who looks like, okay, um, uh, the Men in Black movie, mm -hmm. okay, and it was, I guess, it was the guy at the convenience store that right. never said anything, right? Right. But was an alien. That's the judge in this That's case. The judge, it's yeah. the creepiest looking human being I have ever seen. And he's he's like basic things about being a judge that you don't want to do, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like laugh and moon for the cameras. And this freaking clown goes and does it. And it's like average Americans look at this and go, Yeah, he's right. This is a persecution. This is not mm -hmm. a real thing. Right. right? Well, we because it is started on these on these actual indictments with like Tanya Chutkin or whatever. None of this is remotely sympathetic if you're team Biden or team Democrat that's trying to pull this off. You, all of it looks like 
banana republic bullshit. All of oh, it's because it it that's what it is. It is, but yeah. like it's not even a good show. Is my point? Right. No. So and, like a lot, all these late plans are being destroyed. All right. So let, final word because we have to get going here. Yeah. Is this going to be a good day for Republicans? Um. I, I'm cautiously optimistic about Kentucky. I'm pretty confident about Mississippi. I haven't really studied enough about the Virginia legislature, but what I've heard sounds good. Yeah, I think it could be. I think it could be, you know, a, a, a good night. And if it is, then I can then say, okay, what happened a couple of weeks ago in Louisiana, which was the big Republican blowout. Mm -hmm. Right. Maybe that was the start of a, of a trend that we're going to see. So I'm cautiously optimistic, and hopefully next week we're not coming back. Crying in our beer. Podcast. It sounded like the aftermath of the 22 elections. Because if that's the case, then we're going to say, okay, there really isn't a lot of hope because the Republican Party just sucks. But I don't think it's that. I think we're going to be okay. All right. Well, on that happy note, um, everybody go out. And, and this is something you should know. When you pre-order a book, you help the author. So go to yes. Barnes and Noble and pre-order uh, Race, Revenge. Racism, Revenge, and Ruin Re is available. Ruin. At, um, you can go to Calamo Press's website. You can go to Books a Million. You can okay. go to Barnes and Noble. Um, I think it, it, it's good, it should be available at Amazon maybe by the time this podcast comes out. So anywhere you can you know, order books online, you should be able to, to, to check this thing out. Everybody who has read this book says it is fantastic. If you say so yourself. Like, I, I mean, yeah, it, you it, say it so is myself, fantastic. Like, the reviews of this book have been off the charts good. Yeah. It is, I think, essential reading if you want to understand what America has become in the 15 years since Obama came aboard as a, as a political figure. And that it's not organic. The no. country didn't just like, you know, naturally become like this. This has been pushed and yep. Obama was the guy that pushed it. And this book will, will make that exceptionally clear to you if it's not already. Yes. And I think it's time we revisit this and his legacy has a reckoning. And so go out and buy it. Racism, Revenge, and Ruin by Scott McKay. And, you know, in bookstores everywhere. But pre-order it, and then the publisher knows to, you know, make more books. And it helps yep. Scott, and it helps America, because people need to understand why we're here in order to understand how to get out of here. So yeah. thanks, everybody, for listening today. Uh, find us over at The American Spectator, of course. And um, we'll see you next week. And we'll have the post-election coverage there. And I hope you're right, Scott. We'll see. We'll see.